I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Purpose Made Podcast. We are here to inspire positive change in our post-pandemic global society. Talking to business leaders around the globe, discussing the highs, lows and challenges they've experienced. Our hosts, Neil Bestford and Peter Bell, created Purpose Made in 2021 during the height of the pandemic, combining their passion for people, culture and transformational change. They sit down with business leaders and ask, what does the future look like? Don't forget to click subscribe to hear all the latest news and views on our changed global society. Welcome back to the Purpose Made podcast. And who's on today's episode, Pete? So today we're excited to be joined by Oxfam International. We've got Ed Pomfrey and Amina Hershey. Great stuff. So in terms of today's episode, what's, um, what's the overview? So we're going to begin by talking about Ed's and Amina's journey in around the last 17 months, because Ed himself is based out in South Africa in Johannesburg and Amina is based out in Kenya. So it'll be interesting to kind of talk about their journey for, for the last couple of months. And then we're going to dive into Oxfam's experience, looking at how COVID's been rolled out globally and the impact of the pandemic before looking into things such as the rollout of the vaccine. And then obviously we're going to dive into what the future potentially looks like when the pandemic abates. Amazing. Should be good. So over to Oxfam International and here we go. Thanks for having us on, Peter. It's, it's exciting to, to be part of your vision for the, for the future and how we recover from the pandemic. I'm Ed Pomfret. I'm Deputy Advocacy Campaigns and Engagement Director for Oxfam. And um, I'm based out of Johannesburg um, in South Africa. So I'm Amina Hersey. I'm the head of the Gender Rights and Justice with Oxfam International, and I'm based in Nairobi. So thank you both for, for joining us today. Like looking at the last 17 months, really, from your individual experiences before we dive into kind of Oxfam International, how has the last 17 months been for you individually? I would say tough. <laughs> That's the overall feeling of this 17 months. It's It's been surviving COVID in my experience and in my realities, having had COVID myself and yeah, staying with it for two months and getting like a new illness that is now, <laughs> that is going to be for, for the rest of my life. I, I find it that it, it's been hard. Yeah. Losing family, adjusting to the new ways of working. So working from home, but also the children staying home and um, doing virtual school here in Kenya. It's been hard, but at the, at the same time, we just have to adjust. We have to be resilient and just get on with it. Uh, we have to take the precautions that protect our families and ourselves, really looking after my mental health at this point and going through that journey of healing because, yeah, it, it's been really hard. But at the same time, we need to do something to ensure that, yeah, as you said, we're making things better and thinking of the future as well for all of us. Yeah, and I'm, so I've avoided catching COVID for now, which I'm relieved about. And But I think si- similar to, to what you were saying, I mean, I mean, I think it's been, when it first started, it looked worrying and then it got more and more and more worrying. I must say from, I mean, our family's point of view, we, I mean, I was working from home anyway already. So I was used to working from home. I think what I've what I've seen as a big shift is how everyone who, 
are used to working in offices have really struggled to adapt. You can say, oh, well, I've worked from home for years anyway, no, no big deal. But then everyone else hasn't. And so they're all struggling to adapt to that and, and kind of feeling disconnected. And I think that's been really obvious, like feeling the mental pressure that others are experiencing by being forced to work from home and then also taking on all the care responsibilities that everyone, that a lot of people have. There's kind of like increased care responsibilities. And then there's also concern about people who are living on their own as well. And I think that's easily forgotten as well. So like we inside Oxfam, we focus a lot on unpaid and underpaid care work and people looking after kids or looking after older people but also like we've had a few i've had a few discussions with people who are living on their own and just saying like i'm i'm driving myself up the wall i i i can't like i'm not seeing anything i'm not able to go to the shop just to, just or, or see the outside just for a bit and just maybe meet someone so i think there's a there's a whole variety of kind of struggles the south african government imposed a pretty heavy lockdown relatively early as well i mean they did act strongly and quickly and especially compared to places like the UK, other places in Europe and the US, obviously. So they, they did act soon, but we saw it coming. And I mean, I, I live with diabetes. My son lives with diabetes. Someone else in the household has high, high blood pressure. So we were like, there's a potential, a lot of comorbidities here. We need, to, and, and there was no information. It's just like, you need to be worried if you have diabetes. It turns out it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that. But like, we locked down for a good, ourselves for a good, three maybe four weeks before the formal lockdown came in then the formal lockdown came in and then yeah and then it shifts everything and it shifts how how you feel about about kind of like where you're living what you're doing on a day-to-day basis the lack of contact personal contact with friends i'm a person who will always want to hug people (laughs) like hey greet hi hug hug you know very kind of tactile in that sense and I miss that, you know, like it's, I miss meeting people and giving them an elbow nudge it is not the same as greeting people properly. So there's all of that. And I think that, I think what's interesting is you don't, you don't realize it. You might not realize it because it kind of like seeps along, seeps along. There's some drastic moments. And I mean, we've lost family, we've lost friends. That's obviously like very traumatic, but you, I think the drip, 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 you don't realize. And I, um, Peter, I listened to your, the podcast you guys did on um, mental health awareness week in December last year, I got a cold. I went to have a COVID test, all clear. Could, then couldn't breathe for the next two weeks. And I was just like, "What is going on here?" Like I was, I was kind of like, "Something, there's something wrong." Went to the went to the doctors, and they were like, "Is work stressful?" Yeah, it's pretty stressful. But is work very stressful though? And I was like, "Yeah, it is very stressful." And they were like, "Yeah, this is what you call physical effects of anxiety," and that like totally blew my mind because like that's not how I always envisage myself like it's not my self-image and suddenly it's like oh you've got actual physical effects of anxiety that are really causing you (laughs) trouble on a day-to-day basis and I was just like like that blew my mind and completely made me reevaluate both my self-perception but also kind of what I was doing how I was working you know what I was doing day-to-day getting up and 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 doing what complete reevaluation. And um, so I think the the impact on mental health is huge, as you're saying, Amina. Yeah, I think um, when when I was talking about it, like I referenced to it a lot with like our clients and also like people on the podcast. That underlying COVID is the is a mental health crisis, and it, various nations have, have have begun to address this and acknowledge it, but. You know, like with grief, it takes time. You go through various different stages and it's ultimately a collective experience from COVID. Like it's a rare thing that, you know, we've had crisis before, such as the likes of a financial crash, but that didn't force everybody into seclusion, for example. So it's been a almost like a collective trauma and that, that ability to understand that trauma and work through it is is going to be quite, it's quite an relevant process to work through um, and it's going to be it's going to take time like the process of grieving because you know if if we kind of look at the process over actually back in march 11th 2020 it was not until then that the world health health organization declared that covid-19 was a pandemic so just over a year on we've we've seen well over 172 million people affected with with covid and sadly resulting in the death of over 3.7 million of our loved ones 
we see from an economic and social fallout perspective, it's going to, its effects are going to be felt for decades. It's also affected us in a variety of different ways, some of which you touched upon. I've also read that Oxfam referred to COVID as somewhat of a meta crisis. So maybe if we can kind of, if you can describe that a little more um, to our listeners and also exactly what maybe the last you know, 17 odd months have been like from Oxfam International's perspectives and the key challenges that you guys have faced. I think that that comment uh, that Oxfam made that it's a massive crisis. I mean, this Antonio Guterres said, the UN Secretary General, he said, this has shown an X-ray onto the fragile skeleton of our society. And I think that's that's like a really good kind of metaphor for where we're at. Our societies around the world, everywhere around the world, were hugely unequal to begin with. Massive inequality crisis. And I think that the pandemic shone a light on that inequality and also doubled down on it and increased it. So I think you've got this kind of like, you've got both the an existing crisis, Oxfam's been raising this for years. The inequality crisis is a massive crisis that has not really been addressed properly by the vast majority of governments in the world. But then the, the doubling down of that, and it's both between countries and within within societies and you've got kind of situations where there were there were nine new billionaires created from the pandemic itself like basically from the they're the vaccine billionaires essentially they were created from the pandemic they've made money from the pandemic and that could pay for everyone in the poorest country to be fully vaccinated more than more than pay for it the money that they the wealth that they uh, have in hand could pay for everyone in the world to be vaccinated. And it's just kind of like, and yet they're making money off, they're making this amount of money off the pandemic. And at the same time, the vast majority of people in the world have no access to a vaccine. And the thing I'm really concerned about, about the kind of just going a bit meta. So I have family in the UK. I have family in Spain. I have family in different parts of the world. I can see that as these societies get vaccinated, they will start developing the new normal. Going back to something like normality, it will feel more normal for a bit at least. And you're going to start seeing like a big push for these economies to go into push hard recovery mode. And, and they're going to basically switch everything back on. It's like all these things that were turned off, it lets flick all these switches. Western Europe, America, China, they're all going to get into recovery very quickly. And then that's going to force demand for the raw materials that they all rely on from parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, like huge, huge reliance on all of these raw materials, huge reliance on cheap labor, like cheap labor as far as they're concerned, you know, and and they're going to basically pull and drag the kind of global economic wake up while it's not safe for people in those poorer countries to actually get back to work. And so you've just got this like, I can see it happening. Essentially, there's going to be a a situation where a government, let's say in South Africa or in Kenya or anywhere or Colombia or somewhere, they're going to say, let's say DRC, there's so much demand in China for our mobile phone, the materials for our mobile phones. Screw lockdown, just get back to work, get out there, unsafe. I mean, they're already unsafe conditions, but in these doubly unsafe conditions and some of you are going to die. Well, sorry about that because we need our mobile phones. And you can see that it's 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 coming. I can see it coming down the path. It's like a it's like a train charging towards us. And you, you can see that we're going to get hit by it imminently. I don't know what you think, Amina. Yeah, and I think for us, it's 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 like we're looking at it at, at the COVID nineteen pandemic as not only like a health crisis, but looking at and addressing the inequalities, like Ed said, like through the lens of, you know, gender justice, through the humanitarian crisis that are already happening in the world, through the, you know, sexist and racist economies that we have to actually deal with. And Ed has alluded to this, but really without having that intersecting lens of addressing inequality in that broad framework, then we're just going to be doing, putting a bandage and um, pushing the most marginalized, the most poor people farther back into the actual margins of of society where they're excluded from society, they're further discriminated from society, they've faced so much violence 
in their daily lives, not only from like for women and girls and LGBTQI people through intimate partners, but also through the system. So you see a lot more militarization and police brutality and police force um, using COVID as a reason to basically restrict freedoms, to restrict um, movements and and just really curtail a lot of the freedoms that we we enjoy on any other day before the pandemic so i think yeah looking at and addressing covid for us and when we say meta crisis it's how do we ensure that we're we're, we're looking at inequality across the board and dealing with it and understanding that yeah the most marginalized will continue to be marginalized yeah, no. and i think if you look at it systemically as well like uh, you, you can see that the models that we have, that we've have had for the last 30, 40 years have, haven't worked, aren't working. They weren't working before, but you can really see that they're not working. The idea of neoliberalism, the idea of trickle down, this, this clearly doesn't work, clearly. And we knew it didn't. And many of us have been campaigning against this for years. The, you know, the idea that you can have newly minted billionaires through the pandemic it is literally the case where they can just go and hang out in social isolation on their yachts and get everyone who's all their staff to to be tested for COVID and be really safe. And then if you're a market seller, if you're a woman who gets up at like 4 a.m., gets out on the street, tries to sell tomatoes and oranges to people, and there's no one there because they're forced into lockdown by heavy policing, and they're, they're also then being arrested and subject to harassment themselves – just to try and make a living like the disparity is huge and it's not you know if you're a if you're an orange seller on a roadside you're not going to suddenly kind of like make your way up some sort of imaginary economic ladder uh, into becoming a billionaire like it, it just will not obviously not going to work and then i also think the kind of the austerity measures that came in globally following the global crash of 2008 again that harmed the poorest people. That cut our it cut out social protection where it exists. It cut out unemployment benefits. It, it also like created this sort of perceived crisis of xenophobia. Well, this this crisis of xenophobia and and perceived crisis of immigration. People coming in and taking our jobs. You know, it's obviously a manipulation. And I think that what we can hope for is that coming out of the brutality of this crisis, we can potentially end up with a different model but i do think it's only potential i think there was a really great there's a really great film by naomi klein at the start uh, early on in the pandemic and she said look this is a moment that her, her shock doctrine i concept right the, the concept that a shock can create a fundamental shift in, in societies but she's like be warned because the neoliberal austerity focused trickle down guys men already have this narrative in place they can say that the immigrants are the problem they can say that the problem is high taxes they can say that this is going to stifle economic growth and put you all out of work and i mean oxfam does have an alternative narrative to this but like is it going to cut through and that was her challenge i think to people who who are looking at, at a more you know a well-being approach to our economy looking at a more human economy looking at a more gender just and an anti-racist economy the narrative needs to be built so that it is as engaging as the negative narrative that that created the society that we came from i think and that's where the real struggle now is yeah i think it's um you know in what we're kind of discussing with our clients and I guess like the people that are engaging with us as well is it doesn't have to be this way. So if we kind of look at what the normal led us to here and so the normal, you know, there's, there's discussions about let's return to norm. Well, the norm doesn't work. You have to kind of offer up an alternative. That is a part you have to discuss the p word so you have to mention profit but equally you have to also look more towards long-term focus and what how to ensure your business model is sustainable for future future crises etc yeah the, the whole short-term 
viewpoint. It, it's just, it's not sustainable. And people are realizing this when we have those discussions with people. It's, it's offering up the alternative and the business case for it. So it's, it's not just a case of let's, let's cut some heads and like remove some of our bottom line, you know, cut, 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 cut. That, that doesn't work. Like people are a lot more aware of how businesses operate now. So, um, you know, like reputation at the end of the day, reputation eats eats firms for breakfast. You've got no chance of having a business that's going to be like for the long term if in the public eye you are perceived as as negative because people shift away from purchasing, from having those relationships with you as a company and make more informed decisions. And that's based on, on information freely available to them. So I think as a society, we are changing because we are very much aware of the challenges that are ahead. And um, by solely focusing on just the economy, yeah, like you make a great argument about the billionaires. You know, you kind of look at some of the uber billionaires, the, the ones at the very top, like we look at the likes of climate change and, you know, with the wealth that some of these individuals have, uh, com- an individual wealth or even combined wealth uh, has it sufficient funds there to kind of alleviate some of the, the planet's greatest challenges. So there comes a time when um, those individuals will be challenged upon their mindset and how, how it led to that. And is it is it fair, for example, for Western society to be, you know, the, their approach towards the vaccines? Is it fair to, you know, have like the likes of vaccine nationalism with which we're seeing when, as you, you make a great point, when, when the economies start reopening like in the uk they have a focus on they 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 talk about dates data versus dates but there's a very clearly defined date that they're working towards and you know that that slow reopening of things is seeing more and more people out and about and um, their lives going back to you know normal per se but then equally how is this affecting people in in other countries whereby you know they as you said they haven't had their vaccine so i think collectively we're going to have to see more collective action and more global um, collaboration to see some of these initiatives actually work their way through to where they need to be i remember reading something from you guys saying that we're not safe until everyone's safe that was really interesting when i read that yeah, so I mean, I think just this last week, or yesterday, in fact, we released some data that had been compiled by the People's Vaccine Alliance, which is an alliance of organisations, including Oxfam, UNAIDS and others, basically advocating for everyone to have access to, to the vaccine. And, and the figure is astonishing. It's essentially G7 nations, the richest nations on earth, were vaccinating people at the rate of 4.6 million a day in May. I mean, which is a outstanding, you know, we're, we're, we're all for everybody getting vaccinated. That's great. So if that rate continued, everyone in the G7 nations would be fully vaccinated by January in uh, January next year. But if you contrast it with the, with the poorest countries, with the lowest income countries, they're vaccinating 63,000 people a day. So that's 4.6 million versus 63,000. At that rate, it would take those countries 57 years to vaccinate everyone. I think this, no one's safe unless everyone is safe, is is just the facts. You're seeing it with, I mean, we've experienced it in South Africa with the so-called, I mean, we shouldn't really call them this, but the so-called South African variant, and there's a so-called UK variant and the so-called Indian variant, and there'll be others. And I mean, what we know of the from scientists about this is that this the vaccine will adapt and change and adapt and and it, the vaccine will try and make and sorry the vaccine the virus will try and make itself survive in any context by adapting and because of the nature of these viruses they seem to be able to adapt and change and shift and if the richer countries don't invest in don't open up the the intellectual property don't invest in vaccines for all everywhere there's going to be another variant come up in another country and cause a huge amount of problems. And regardless of the vaccine, that won't protect you against it. And so it's kind of like, it's wild to see countries hoarding vaccines, hoarding more vaccines than they need. Canada was holding more vaccines than they could possibly use for their whole population. And it's just like, what this, this does not make sense when by doing so, you're putting yourselves at risk in the future. So even from a very instrumental 
point of view, it doesn't make sense. But the other element is it seems to be related to protecting the profits of that, of pharmaceutical companies. That's That seems to be the real driver for this in reality. Of course, they want their populations vaccinated, but also they want to protect the, the, the big pharma from kind of losing their profits. And as I said, the, there were nine new billionaires. They have a combined wealth of 19 billion. And so they could they, they could use that, so even just some of that wealth to vaccinate everyone in all the poorest countries. And and yet they're, they're just making vast profits. And it's worth remembering that these profits that the big pharma companies are making were subsidized by the public purse in all of these countries. So this isn't a case of like, oh, the, the free market is working. We've developed this amazing science because we've invested our profits back into vaccine development. It's the public has paid through their taxes to support these pharma companies to develop these new vaccines because it's a public health crisis. And then shareholders sitting back and taking a profit from it. And so it's you can just see how the whole situation is completely skewed against vaccines for all. It's completely, it's completely set up in favour of big pharma profits and against kind of like the public good. But I guess the difficulty of that is educating people that are part of that process because, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you want to earn those types of crazy like amounts of money, for example, you, you, a lot of it comes down to access. You have to have access to the people that allow you to get those contracts. You have to have access to the people that are there to give you the backing to get those relationships in play with regards to suppliers, etc. That is something that a lot of people don't really fathom behind the likes of a neoliberal model is that a lot of the way it works is to do with a, a small minority having access rather than overarchingly everybody has this free market whereby you know from the best rise it's not always the case looking a little bit further because um there will come a time when i would say the pandemic does start to abate and we're kind of starting to see a little bit more of this slowly but surely like as you say some of the countries are starting to reopen and whether that's right or wrong we've kind of discussed a lot of the issues at hand already looking to, more to the future though from your expertise and your experience what does the future look like and how do we go forward from here i think one thing that we're really seeing a lack of is leadership and leadership from well governments who are basically champions or claim to be champions of human rights across the world i think with this with this pandemic it's really shown the kind of inequality as mentioned um but also just i want to basically highlight a friend's statement when it comes to this like we're witnessing a stupidity of our collective dependencies on just a handful of countries because really with this vaccine rollout but also with the covid pandemic what we're seeing a lot of is not only the neoliberal failure but also a lot of the racism and neocolonial systems coming up again because with the patent protections and waivers the kind of discussions that we're hearing is that they might not manufacture it safely so really going around instead of actually addressing the actual fact that it's all about the margins and the profits you see those tones of racism of india south africa will not be able to manufacture well they're the actual hubs and chemists of the world for all other drugs so what is different with covid vaccines you know that 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 brown and black people are not able to manufacture for example vaccines that that for me is just like <laughs> very morally um, stained and unacceptable and i think we need to start calling it out in india for example the the government has has done a symbolic job in terms of the vaccine wala but also the protections of its citizens we're seeing massive losses and deaths but instead of dealing with that we are seeing a public campaign and and machinery of the state to try and create a beautiful image you know of of a country that is is ready for business and um accepting yet still restricting people's voices there's no protest happening there's there's no restriction like there's restrictions in every front but also i think there's a reinforcement of like really harmful norms 
that we've seen, especially when it comes to, for example, women and girls. Like in Malaysia, once the COVID pandemic hit and there was a lot of lockdowns, you had governments of the Malaysian government basically putting out posters on Facebook and advertising on tips for women, for example, to be a happy and peaceful home um, during COVID-19 by wearing, for example, makeup or working while working from home or speaking coyly and giggling, which is very offensive. Here in Kenya, a result of basically about 140,000 girls getting pregnant um, in the country in just one year, the government's, the county government here in, in Kajado basically put out a campaign called Funga Mugu basically meaning close your legs to the girls um, who are being essentially raped. But that was their response to this second pandemic, which is actually a violation and cruel, you know, um, violence against girls. So I think it's very ingrained in terms of the responses and the lack of leadership in, in throughout this, this COVID um, period. What I think I see or what I feel that needs to happen to actually see a better future is really a, a reset. I don't think we can go back to the norm or how it used to be. I think the response has to be human-centered. It has to actually be addressed through not only you know gender, but also feminist lens, where we're looking at and tackling issues of discrimination, of exclusion, of the economy being fit for purpose for everybody, and not just few white men <laughs> in the North who are billionaires and the rest of us are going to be, and actually I find myself privileged, but a lot of people living you know in poverty we actually have like statistics that are saying about 47 million women for example and girls will be pushed into poverty and it will take more than a decade for the world's poorest countries to actually you know um, recover from the economy from the economic impact of covid so i think really looking at integrating a human-centered um, response that is inclusive of everybody, um, of all genders, of their needs is really important, but also like anchoring it in, in justice and rights and addressing the historic inequalities. I think that's really just being reflective and aware of that, of the inequalities that we've actually perpetuated and maintained is going to be a direction or a need um, that we, we have to start addressing to actually make a just recovery for all of us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, and I think building off what you're saying, I mean, I mean, one thing that's really concerned me since the beginning is the phrase build back better. 
Uh, it goes to the point you were making as well, Peter, about, you know, get back to normal. Well, no, normal was broken. So I have problems with two of the words in build back better, and that's build, because that implies uh, investment into large-scale infrastructure, which is cli- which is damaging for the climate. So aside from the COVID immediate pandemic crisis, we have this longer-term climate crisis. It's not longer-term. It's actually hit home, hitting hit home and hitting home amongst people living in poverty around the world. Like, for example, in Kenya, I mean, you know, if you if you talk to farmers in Kenya, small-scale farmers, they can't predict when the seasons are anymore. They don't know. You know, you'll you'll see people will come to Nairobi to work to supplement their income as farmer as small-scale farmers. And they'll, maybe they'll work as taxi drivers or they'll work in some other or shops or waiters or, or what have you. But they'll suddenly have to dash back to their small-scale farm to plant because suddenly the rains have come early or the rains have come late or something else has happened and then again it needs to harvest all of a sudden like the climate crisis is a reality for people right now and i think then the, the pandemic then doubles down on that so so definitely we do not need to build back better and we don't want to build back either because we don't want to go back to the new normal we need a, a gender just a racially just and a climate just recovery and that does go to like looking beyond GDP is the is the is the indicator of growth, is the indicator of benefit for everyone. And I, I know it's something that, that Peter, you've been covering on your on your series of podcasts. It's this this whole the, the concept of the well-being, a well-being economy, a human economy. I mean, I'm I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember people laughing at the Tony Blair government in the UK when John Prescott introduced its well his well-being index. But that was a that was like a really early attempt to kind of say. Actually, we need to look beyond GDP. At the time, I really strongly remember like they were ridiculed. They were like, oh, so birdsong is suddenly a, an indicator of happiness and well-being, being able to hear birdsong, and they were laughing at them. But actually, it's not so it's not so funny. If you're living in a slum and you're trying to eke out a living from whatever you can get from wherever you can get it, actually, what you need to be looking at is, is centering those people in the future development and that invo- that that involves things like investing in renewables obviously it involves things like not hu- building huge overpasses and bypasses over people's houses you know it looks at like public transport alternatives it looks at free and fair delivery of public services health and education services if if, if nothing else if the pandemic teaches us nothing else it's clear we need to invest in health services i mean even the most developed health services in the world were overstretched. I don't know if it lands with people like in the UK, but like if you can imagine how overstretched the NHS is, which is kind of like held up rightly as a gold standard of a public health service in the world. Can you imagine what it must be like, what it is like for people who are living in the DRC or, or worse, as Amina pointed out earlier, if you're living in Yemen, you know, so you're dealing with being bombed every day. Yeah, good good luck with getting to a hospital if you can safely. And if you can, the level of health service that you will face when you get there is minimal. So people are already dealing with multiple crises. There can be it can be it can be violence, it can be conflict, it can be climate crisis. With a minimal health service, you can just see the the kind of the existing crisis that the exist the the, the normality that we had before was, and it's just been doubled down on. I think another key thing, I mean, I mean, I don't know if another key thing is like recognizing unpaid care work. And then I know that's a big agenda that we've been working on. I don't know if that's something you want to kind of talk more to. Yeah, no, I think because of the pandemic and the fact that basically 70% of women are usually working um, at the front lines. So like really low paying and underpaying jobs and because of the different restrictions and the, the 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 covid pandemic a lot of them either have to have have had to actually stop working but also provide the care for the families or dependents and that means it's it's basically shouldering more responsibilities without any kind of social protection because care work is not actually recognized across the world. So when we even talk about care economies, for example, looking and recognizing, but also redistributing work among among family members, among women and men um, is really important just so that we can actually have 
some some sort of like protections for a lot of these people who are shouldering all these responsibilities because when we even talk about men, mental health care we don't actually consider what that that means for for a lot of them and and care really is is one of the main areas that we are actually going to be highlighting and focusing on because it's really undervalued but also unrecognized and disregarded so valuing that area of work and pushing and calling for um recognition and also ensuring that there's a welfare system that invests in like free quality public services social protection that supports them is is basically important and crucial for anybody to just survive during these difficult times it ultimately comes down to people having the ability to reflect businesses have the ability to reflect and society as a whole having the ability to reflect and say we can be better than this because the issues that we're facing going forward there's been many like I, i'm i'm 38 now and since i since i was born you know there's always been the expectation of climate change and it's going to this is going to happen this is going to happen but no ownership nobody's willing to take ownership of the of these difficult issues in in order to see that happening we have to partner with companies with individuals with with you know governments etc and be that voice of reason to say that we have to be better there's no point in applying just a a short term fix it's about looking at individual impacts so looking at a business's um, whole business model and seeing how it operates currently and how it could be better judging companies on what they actually do for society rather than just on how much wealth they 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 join together there's a there's a great piece like an elderman report that has a barometer on there that that talks about lots of things such as um you know like the loss of leadership and the importance in which um truth and honesty plays because at the end of the day so much of the difficulties we have at the moment is because people don't want to be honest with themselves and their colleagues and their stakeholders and their boards that ultimately the issues that they're facing it's because they're not they're not taking time to sit back and reflect to try and address those wider issues in a way that isn't just going to benefit the bottom line this is why we always talk about look beyond the p look beyond the profit because you have almost any businesses these days have have a have a footprint and i would say like a social footprint and an economic footprint if they're not fully aware of how they are impacting the world and how they could work towards seeing the world become a better place then they're not really doing their job right if 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 it's being truthful because um you know just to focus on wealth it's it's always going to be short term you need to look long term and and the issues that you know we've had a we've had a child during the pandemic so Albie's now like 40 months old now so if you take our business model like our business is is very different to other businesses and it's set up on the premise that we are a business with a soul i think a lot of companies have kind of lost their soul they've lost their true essence what they are about and um because of that that's kind of focus upon wealth and growth it just becomes unsustainable it it leads us to issues that we face at the moment and it doesn't address the issues of the future so it's about reengaging with people in a positive light and saying that we can all work together as a collective to face down some of these hard issues but it's going to take some time to do so but in order to do that we all have to kind of do our part i would say i remember looking back in some of the old studies that i did like during my time studying politics like you do get that natural kind of ignorance i guess for change but it's just fear at the end of the day it's fear of something new fear of something different and at the end of the day like if you were to live life by just the side of fear and never never daring to do something beyond your kind of area of comfort then we'd never develop as a as a society and a and a population so it's about doing the right thing and i think um yeah i think the more and more we engage with people about what they're doing and how they could be better i would say the the quicker we are to alleviate in some of these true large scale um, issues that are at hand but I think what you're saying, Peter, I mean, I agree I agree with everything you just said there. But I think it's a combination. So, and, and I think you can see now clearly 
on the plus side, as you pointed out right at the beginning, businesses can't afford not to take part and be part and, and care about their societies that they're in. Because what I think is, is great now is you have like the ability of people mobilize and they will they will tear into businesses that are either seen as faking, faking social awareness or, or are just simply not doing it. And you can see that that is, start, you know, they, there's a, there's got to be a shift in the psychology, especially a big business. Um, I think small businesses have a bit of more of a tendency to be part of where they're coming from because they don't have the ability to shift into a tax haven or to run away from, from a population. But I, I, what I quite like is this kind of like potential to, to challenge big business directly head on with an, like organic movements of, of young people just saying, we are not going to put up with this anymore. It's not, it's, this is not what we want to see happening. So I think there's, there's a potential increased accountability as well as, and that also it will help people to overcome the fear of change. So I agree with all of that. But the one thing that concerns me is you've got fear of change coupled with manipulation for the profit of the elite. All of these billionaires are making money and enabled to make money because they're probably the boys they went to school with, like are probably their mate. They're, 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 they're the ones now in charge. They're the ones who are now the heads of countries and they can just chat to that old boys network and sort it out. And it's kind of like, it's so visible. I feel like there's some denial about this. Elites are in charge. The elite, the, the military, the police, and big corporation, that, that kind of like toxic mixture means that they also try, they, they desperately try and pull the wool over people's eyes to prevent these connections being seen. You know, we're not sitting here with some like amazing x-ray monitor. You know, we don't, we don't know what all these conversations are happening are. We just know that they're going on and, and we're aware of it. But I guess the question is, how do we make sure that everyone becomes aware of it and it becomes that unacceptable that people then really take that action? You know, and I, that's where I think we've got a bit of a disconnect going on between populations who are frustrated, feeling the impact, feeling the lack of security, and then kind of like leaders in inverted commas who are telling them, no, everything, it's fine. You know, we're, we're all in it for you. We're all in it together and so on and so on. And we're, we're, we're clearly not all in it together because if we were, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's quite Orwellian, I would say. People all kind of, if they don't know the term Orwellian, I'd encourage everybody to read a book by George Orwell called 1984. It's a fantastic book. And I guess, like, I remember when I first read that, it kind of opens your eyes. And it comes down to education, like a lot of the piece that we talk about in our purpose-made business is education. It's about engagement and it's about supporting businesses through to not just do the right thing, but as you said before, press that reset button and come out with a whole new vision, I guess. Um, so there's that piece. And, and individually, we have to be more aware of what's going on around us. Um, so, you know, take the time to, if you read something, the, the difficulty with regards to misinformation, for example, is um, a lot of people are getting their information these days through the likes of Facebook and Twitter, but they're not doing the basics such as um, checking the source or ch such as like cross-referencing. And it only takes two or three minutes to to work out if this is fact or, or fiction. Yeah, it's, it's these simple things and it comes down to education. You know, I think as a, as a population globally, we are definitely becoming more and more intelligent. We're evolving. We're, we're, um, we're being a, a lot more wise to what's going on around us. Um, so the stuff that would have been able to be almost, you know, accepted in the past isn't, as you said, now it's being called upon. Um, you see some of these issues in the light of day um, towards how companies are operating to how the use of and changing of contracts during COVID, it gets called out immediately. And, um, it's, it's short-termism for the companies because, you know, I, I said earlier on, like reputation eats firms for breakfast and they they have no future unless they are willing to address the, the true impacts of their whole network and their like supply chain per se. So it 
ultimately there's there's a lot of hope for the future. I know we've talked a lot in depth about the challenges, but I think it's important to have these truthful discussions because, you know, one of the difficulties that we're going to face going forward is it's a lot easier to to spin a positive tale rather than tell the honest truth. And there'll come a point in the next year, a few years or so, whereby societies will have to make that decision. Are we wanting to accept the tale or are we, are we willing to take on board the truth? Because when the truth kind of prevails, it, it ultimately it's, it's, it's a harder message to take, I guess. And the challenges that are faced by you are hard because, you know, everybody likes a positive spin. We're ultimately here for a short term period of time. And like, I think the one thing that I, especially since having a, a, a child is like, I don't really want to leave this world in a, in a, in a negative way. I want to kind of leave an impact in a positive way. It gets to a point when, yeah, you, you know that what you're doing, you have a purpose. And I think that sense of mission and that sense of positive purpose is key. I want to be part of the action to see some of the issues that I kind of was born into addressed. I want to be part of that conversation. And I, you know, like I want people to feel engaged and empowered because through empowerment leads to positive change. And, you know, we, people have to be put on this kind of together journey whereby they can, they can look towards a future of hope and optimism rather than kind of doom and gloom, which sadly is, is quite obvious within society at the moment. We need to change the mindset. And yeah, it is about resetting. It's not about back to normal. It's just a, it's a reset moment. And just building off what you're saying, Peter, I think, I mean, yeah, we've, we have done a lot on telling some home truths. And I hope people aren't leaving the conversation thinking, wow, this is, I mean, this is a lot. Like, what can we do about this? We can do stuff about this. As Amina was talking about earlier, we, if we if we construct a new economy, we construct new economies that care about people and planet over profits. It's doable. We can do it together. If everyone contributes and says, "What what's the actual positive future we want from this?" It, it's something that actually lives within our planetary boundaries and also provides living wages, labour rights for all workers, makes sure that we do get a people's vaccine into everyone's arms as soon as possible. And then that enables us then to, to, to kind of reopen, challenge the directly the racism, the patriarchy, and, and create a new, more equal, fairer, more just um, society and economy for everyone. Also, like this can be this this can be done. It and it it is not that complicated to pay for it either. If the rich pay their fair share of tax on on their extreme wealth that they have. A lot of this can be paid for. Um, I think I saw a stat the other day about um, it was something about the the defense spending that the U.S. government. So the U.S. government spent seven hundred and twenty one billion dollars on defense in twenty twenty. Just think about what else you could spend that seven hundred twenty one billion dollars on. You know, it, it's it's a huge amount. It, like it dwarfs anything else. We've thrown around some stats in the court, but it dwarfs anything else. If we just think about why do we need that defense budget, let's think about what we could spend this money on. We could, the Americans could probably build a health service for that, which yeah. they don't have. It's, you know, a it's proper a, national health service that's free for all. It's about being being proactive rather than reactive. In, you take the measures that we see in society and so much of it is, oh, let's react to this. Let's do it this way. Let's, and it's just, you know, immediate quick like firefighting rather than the ability to step back and think holistically and say well actually this is the these are the steps and mechanisms we need to take to see kind of true change and true positive change i would say and what what about what's what about you amina what what's what's your thoughts for the future i think we need to stop looking at individualism and focus more on universalism because i think that that then removes that angle of thinking only of me, but also thinking of the short term. When you're thinking about how your policies, how your practices affect somebody else, it changes your mindset and it makes you think of different angles and not just the narrow lens. And I think having that, that where I say basically um, 
solidarity, for example, is the antidote for populism. You're able to actually connect and empathize and sympathize um, building off that and those emotions and that reflection to actually create and, and, and think about like more equal future for all of us. So not just thinking about what, what works for me or what do I need to do to, to survive. Um, but when you think about somebody else and together that, that builds something and that starts um, building and addressing those issues that we've mentioned before. Yeah, no, true. And I think we have to also remember that COVID's like, it's taken us a step back. We've gone back into, you know, like it's the first thing in my, in my life that it's kind of enforced me into my house for a period of time. But with that, we also have to take time to reflect on the experiences that we've had a lot. We've talked about the, a lot of the challenges, but equally that empathy for, for others, that thought process that actually how we were operating previously maybe wasn't really working and that whole ability to kind of reflect we need to remember these learnings when we do start to see a reopening and we do start to see society and the world move forward because these lessons that we've learned during the pandemic are going to set us in a good stead going forward um, and hopefully make sure it's that we're a lot more aware of the challenges that we face and feel more empowered to be part of that journey. I was seeing some polling um, that uh, about kind of like how people were seeing the future. There's some really positive stuff in there. So I think, as you're saying, Peter and Amina, it's kind of definitely shifting people's mindsets. There's something about like 86% of people in the like high and middle income countries, they want to see the world become more sustainable and equitable rather than going back. That's 86% in, in the richest countries in the world. Likewise, like 64% in those countries, in, in 11 countries of the high middle income countries, they agree something must be done to fairly distribute our country's wealth. So again, like that's a, that's a huge mental shift because you, you can guarantee that during the 80s, early 90s, that certainly was not the case. So things, things are moving. You've got like 71% of Europeans now supporting a universal basic income. And then in the UK, even, you've got 70% of people uh, supporting wage cap limits. So 100,000 per year, 200,000 per year, or 300,000 per year, 70% uh, of people in the UK actually support that, which is just a, you know, it's an extraordinary shift. And as you say, I think there's an opportunity here to do things fundamentally different in a, and fundamentally positively. Um, and we, we just need to get into that state where we give ourselves the permission as societies to be able to do this. And, and once we do that, as you say, once we overcome the fear, then we, we have a real opportunity here. No, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's a great place to end as well. Now, thank you so much for your time and for your amazing insight. It's, um, it's been yeah, really, really enjoyable. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. And it's really Cheers, great Peter. to meet you. You too. Have Thanks, a good Amina. day. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Purpose Made, a strategic change consultancy supporting people and business to navigate the post-pandemic global society. This is what transformational change sounds like. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and we'll see you again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.